When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I called up Slate's Mark Joseph Stern the other day to talk about this Supreme Court case he just can't stop thinking about. I was delighted that you asked to talk about this one because it's so important and just got drowned out by impeachment stuff. Mark was there for oral arguments in this case last week. He says John Roberts was remarkably chipper that morning, considering he'd wrapped up his duties in the Senate just a few hours beforehand. And impeachment stuff is obviously really important, too. But like this is the front line of separation of church and state stuff right now. Like this is it. And in a, in a more normal political time, I think this case would be perceived as a blockbuster. This case, it's about whether Montana can avoid funneling taxpayer money to religious schools. The details are a little complicated here. We'll get to that. But Mark says what made this case interesting to him is how the old ideas about separating church and state are getting reinterpreted to focus on discrimination. What the plaintiffs want to fight about here is a single article in Montana's state constitution, a provision that restricts funding for religious schools. Dozens of states have provisions like this. They're called Blaine Amendments. A Blaine Amendment is this provision of a state constitution that bars the state from providing any public funds to religious schools or religious institutions. Uh, There was an attempt to put this in the U.S. Constitution, and it failed. And so all of these states adopted it instead. And the advocates for school choice, they have this whole theory that Blaine Amendments were motivated purely by anti-Catholic bigotry. This is more than just a theory. You can still find old newspaper cartoons advocating against government funding for Catholic education. They don't age well. In one, Catholic bishops are crocodiles, snapping menacingly at American school children. And I just want to be clear, we're not defending religious bigotry here. Sitting in oral arguments, Mark could hear the lawyers and the justices wrestle with this question. Are these kinds of amendments discriminatory? Just listen to the lawyer for the state of Montana spar with Justice Brett Kavanaugh. I think no-aid clauses have a principal justification, especially in Montana. Well, they're, they're certainly rooted in, in grotesque religious bigotry against Catholics. you agree with that? I mean, I think that in the 1880s, there was undoubtedly grotesque religious bigotry against, against Catholics. I don't think that's... That was out the in the clear 70s. motivation for this. No, not, that's not true. In 1972, Constitution... One thing that the plaintiffs really want here is for the Supreme Court to declare that every single one of these amendments in 37 states is unconstitutional. 
that all 37 states have a provision in their constitution that is motivated by anti-Catholic bigotry and that all of them have to be struck down, um, essentially opening the floodgates to state funding of religious institutions. Whew. Yeah. Today on the show, Mark Joseph Stern is going to explain why this case about school choice in Montana is really about so much more. After a push and pull between Republican lawmakers and the state judiciary, it seemed like a question had been settled. The government needed to stay away from funding religious education. But in the coming weeks, we'll find out if that's really true. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Montana ended up defending itself in Washington because of this school choice program devised by Republican lawmakers a few years back. It tried to channel money to private schools, and yes, religious ones too. Eventually, the state Supreme Court canceled the program entirely, saying it violated that provision in Montana's constitution. This so-called Blaine Amendment bans direct or indirect appropriation of state money to any institution, controlled even partially by a church. So I wanted to start off by asking Mark how the state was even able to fund religious schools in the first place. Let's just start with the story of this funding, this scholarship. You know, back in 2015, the state of Montana passed this law, but it was actually a tax credit. Can you just explain a little bit why they had to do it in this complicated way and how this is supposed to work? Yeah. So the legislature looked at this provision and said, OK, well, we're not going to create a voucher system uh, and we're not going to create uh, a, just a direct tax credit system where, you know, you send your kids to private schools and you get reimbursed through your tax refund. Because um, they knew well, that would be overturned. That's right. They knew that the Montana Supreme Court would strike it down because it would be blatantly unconstitutional under under state law. So instead, they passed this kind of creative workaround where individuals in the state can donate to scholarship organizations $150. And then they get that $150 back through a tax credit. And then the scholarship organization awards these uh, scholarships to children who attend private schools, including religious ones. And so, 
you know, you can be sort of broad here and say that it is taxpayers funding these schools, that it is the state funding these schools. And I think that that is basically a correct way to describe the system. But the Montana legislature would disagree because they would say, oh, well, no, no, no. What's really happening is we're just reimbursing people who out of the goodness of their heart want to help uh, send underprivileged students to private religious schools. But hearing you explain it, it sounds like they're kind of laundering the money, you know, passing it from one to another to another. And and eventually you don't even know where it came from or where it's supposed to go. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it actually introduces a strange little wrinkle to this case, um, which is who really has standing to challenge the abolition of this whole scheme? Because Chief Justice John Roberts actually raised this question and arguments like, shouldn't it be the schools here who are bringing this case? Is it really the parents who are injured? So this this whole money laundering tax credit scheme does create uh, these sort of ripple effects that raise weird questions about how this operates and who is injured when the whole system comes toppling down. Hmm. So as soon as this got passed, you could see Montana trying to sort of control the way that this new regulation tax credit worked. The Department of Revenue wrote a prohibition basically saying religious schools couldn't participate in this. And that was sort of the opening salvo. What happened after that? Yeah. So so the state agency is not fooled by this scheme. They're like, OK, this is state aid to a religious school. So we're going to just try to sort of rewrite the law through regulations and say, oh, well, it can only go to secular private schools. And so then the parents who are sending their kids to religious schools file a lawsuit and say, OK, well, you don't get to uh, limit my options to only secular private schools. That is a violation of the federal constitution's free exercise clause of the First Amendment. So basically, the parents say, you are punishing us for trying to exercise our faith by using these scholarships to send our kids to religious schools. And no matter what the Montana constitution says, that is a violation of our First Amendment right under the U.S. Constitution, which trumps all, which guarantees tease us the ability to send our kids to religious schools. The thing is, back when Montana decided it wasn't going to fund religious education, it was faith leaders making this argument. They wanted their churches and parishes to be fully separate from government control. Now, the debate looks like it's flipped, with religious schools arguing time and time again for this tax credit. This scholarship fund over 90% of the private schools that use it are religiously affiliated. And that means that some of their curriculum is pretty different from what's acceptable in public schools. So Stillwater Christian School, which is the school sort of at the center of the Supreme Court case, they teach that basically same-sex marriage is wrong, that there's no such thing as a transgender identity, that people have to have to be either male or female. And when they attend the school, they have to use the bathrooms that conform with their, quote, biological sex. Uh, some of the other schools that are benefiting from this program are even more explicit. They they compare homosexual behavior to incest and bestiality. They say it's offensive to God. They fire any teachers who are not Christian or are not uh, committed Christians. Certainly the kind of stuff that you will not be seeing in a, a public school. This is uh, teaching biblical principles that allegedly sort of prohibit any kind of support for LGBTQ identity. Some of the parents behind this case say they were sending their kids to religious school to protect them from being bullied or left out because of their religion. On the Stillwater Christian website, 
Other parents talk about the benefits they see in a Christian education. Uh, Stillwater Christian School, where they're being disciplined, taught, and trained through the lens of a Christian worldview. And to me, that is huge. I think of the verse in Proverbs. So when this case gets to the Supreme Court, you've written a little bit about how the plaintiffs here are making a pretty complicated argument about why they should be able to still have this program, even though the state Supreme Court has said no. Can you lay it out as simply as possible? Yeah. I, and to lay it out simply, I want to backtrack a little bit and say that I think that the Supreme Court's or at least its conservative majority wants to do something with this case that it may just not be able to do. Why do you uh, say that? Okay, so there are 29 states plus the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico that provide either vouchers or tax credits to reimburse parents who send their kids to religious schools, right? And it is very clear that what these plaintiffs want, what the Institute for Justice wants, that's the law firm behind the suit, they want to tell these states that as soon as they have begun funding private schools uh, through tax credits or vouchers, that they are forbidden from distinguishing between secular schools and religious schools. That as soon as a state opens up funding to any private educational institution, it has to fund private religious schools equally because discriminating against religious schools violates the free exercise clause. Okay, that's the goal of this case. And that is what um, justices like Brett Kavanaugh and John Roberts and Sam Alito have indicated in previous opinions that they want to do. So you're holding back religion by refusing to fund these institutions. Yeah. And the way that the conservatives phrase it is that you're penalizing religious exercise. So, you know, take two parents, one secular, one religious. If you have a scheme that only funds private secular schools, then the secular parent benefits, but the religious parent doesn't. And so they're being burdened because of their religious exercise. That is the theory behind this case. And that is the ruling that I think five justices want to issue at the end of the day in some case to force all of these states to open up the floodgates of public money to private religious schools. Hmm. It's interesting because the advocates arguing against the Montana Christian schools here, they make the opposite argument that the court is protecting religious freedom by ensuring public money not be used to fund religious education. Do you want to explain a little bit how they come to the exact opposite logic? Yeah. Um, and I think it's actually a, a very compelling argument that the defendants make here because it's the argument that James Madison made at the founding. And it's the argument that a lot of the, the founding fathers seem to support, which is that religious freedom does not just mean the ability to practice your religion without penalization. Right. It also means your ability to remain neutral from religious conflicts or other religions that you do not subscribe to as a, as a citizen of the United States. If you are a Muslim, you should not have to fund Catholic religious exercise, for instance. That is a violation of your right to a free conscience, right? It's not just that Catholics get to practice their religion. Surely they do. But the rest of us should also have a right not to be funding that practice of religion because it may conflict with our own personal religious beliefs or we may be secular or agnostic or atheist and we may not want to fund religious exercise at all. You know, you said you think the justices took this case to make this larger argument, but that it's one you don't think they can actually make. Why do you say that? 
because of what the Montana Supreme Court did. The Montana Supreme Court is the real wild card here. I think that, frankly, the the parents and the Institute for Justice, which is, again, the, the libertarian law firm that's um, supporting the parents and the schools here, I think they really wanted the Montana Supreme Court to draw a line between religious and secular schools and say, OK, well, we can only provide scholarships to uh, secular schools, because that would have been what we call a clean vehicle for the U.S. Supreme Court. That would have given the U.S. Supreme Court an opportunity to say, well, you don't get to draw that line. It is impermissible to draw a line between private, secular, and sectarian schools. But of course, that's not what the Montana Supreme Court did. It just struck down the entire program, and that really deprived everybody here of a clean vehicle to present this issue of alleged discrimination against religious exercise. Hmm. What did you see when this came into court that gives you any kind of indication of where the justices might rule? So, first of all, I saw all of the justices struggling with what the Montana Supreme Court did here because it adds a new wrinkle to the case, right? Did they take this case before the Montana Supreme Court ruled or did they know going in that there was going to be this wrinkle? No, they knew going in that there was going to be this wrinkle, which is why I and many other court reporters were shocked that they took the case because, and this is where our conversation gets really messy, because it's such a messy vehicle. It, It doesn't really make sense. It takes this pretty simple question, right? Can states deny funding to private religious schools while providing it to private secular schools. It takes that and turns it into this weird muddled issue of, well, say you have a system where the religious schools are getting funding and the secular schools are getting funding and the state Supreme Court doesn't like the religious schools getting funding, so they strike the whole thing down. Well, is that a new layer of religious discrimination. And that is such a weird question that feels far afield from what the court really wants to do here, that I sensed many of the justices struggling to understand why this case was even before them. And this was something that Justice Elena Kagan kept coming back to during arguments. She kept saying, look, I I, I get the argument about discrimination. I get the argument that states shouldn't be able to discriminate against religious schools. But there is no discrimination here anymore. No one is being discriminated against. The secular parents and the religious parents are being treated treated the exact same. So why in the world is this case even before us? Mark says there was also this other argument that showed just how far apart some of the justices are here. Justice Sam Alito brought up this curious hypothetical where he said, all right, let's imagine that there is a scholarship program that funds students of all races, right? But... The scholarships are disproportionately given out to black students. And some people say, wow, these are mostly going to blacks, and we don't like that, and that's contrary to state law. So the state Supreme Court says, okay, uh, that discrimination is uh, we're going to strike down the whole thing. Is that constitutional? No, so we don't think the race analogy is that. I don't think that's constitutional, and we just don't think that race and religion are identical.
And uh, Montana's attorney, Adam Unikowski, said, yes, of course, that would be unconstitutional. And Alito said, well, what's the difference here? Are you basically just saying that discrimination against religion isn't as bad as discrimination against race? And Justice Breyer basically jumped in and answered this question for him. Um, And there was this fascinating colloquy basically between Alito and Breyer, where Breyer said, look, we don't have separation of church and state on matters of race, right? We don't have an establishment clause when it comes to race. There is no constitutional provision that ever requires race discrimination. But when it comes to religion, we do have this clause that says, you know, the government can never respect any establishment of religion. And that means that states actually do have a compelling interest in sometimes treating religion differently. Can I say something else, though? which is that the comparison is all wrong. It gets a little bit to your <laughs> your conversation about who has the standing to bring the case here. This isn't right. about Christian kids benefiting more. This is about Christian schools benefiting more. I think the right comparison is what if it was a school that was only for black kids that was benefiting more? You know, could we shut the whole thing down, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a brilliant comparison because there cannot lawfully be schools that are only for black kids. Right. And the reason why is that, you know, we we don't allow that kind of invidious race discrimination. And so I definitely agree that the hypo is all wrong because race and religion are radically different. They can be compared in some ways, you know, that it can sometimes be helpful to think about this analogy. But when you're talking about state funding, you you crash into this problem of racial segregation being a, a horrible thing that everyone detests, whereas religious segregation is like kind of a cornerstone of religion, right? Like religion creates in-groups and out-groups. Religious schools do not allow non-religious students in. So I definitely agree the entire hypo is just built on a faulty premise. But Alito isn't really interested in that. What he wants to do is open the the floodgates of public funding to religious schools, and he'll say whatever he needs to to get there. Hmm. So you said five justices want to rule in a particular way. You're just not sure they're going to be able to. The fifth justice there, of course, is the chief justice, John Roberts. How is he reacting when this case was before him? So I think John Roberts definitely wants to open the floodgates to state funding of religious schools. That's my read on John Roberts, because he wrote this decision a few years ago in a case called Trinity Lutheran, where he sort of laid the groundwork to say that states don't get to discriminate against a religious entity because it's religious. So I think that he is on board with the other conservatives here, but I do think he is a swing vote in this case if only because he he does care uh, about the image of the court. He does care about the court's decisions being fairly coherent and, and, and not just like a muddled mess. And I think he recognized after Justice Kagan's questioning that this case is a muddled mess, that, you know, not only are the parents bringing this this lawsuit instead of the schools when it's the schools that are being harmed the most, but also that 
Montana took away the big question of the case. It took it off the table or the Montana Supreme Court did. So if the court reaches out and still grabs it, that will look like really severe overreach. It will look like the five conservatives are just grasping at whatever they can use to implement their agenda. And I I think that's an image that the chief justice wants to avoid. I think that Chief Justice Roberts just needs to exercise some patience here. He needs to recognize that this is not the case for what he wants to do. He needs to find some reason to to dismiss it, and there are many. And then he needs to just wait for that other case to come to him. There's a, a perfect plaintiff out there just sitting patiently waiting for the Institute of Justice to call them up and say, would you like to be our test case? Mark Joseph Stern, thank you so much for joining me. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Mark Joseph Stern writes about the courts and the law for Slate. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Mara Silvers, Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Danielle Hewitt. I'm Mary Harris. I'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> 